0: Alright, welcome back. I'm Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church in Marana, Arizona. Uh, And this is a Thursday live stream. This one's going to be a little bit different than some of the ones I've done in the past weeks that were meditations. This one is going to be the beginning of a four-part class on human sexuality and the ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that's our denomination, and our social statement on human sexuality that was published and approved. It was published actually earlier, but it was approved at the ELCA National Assembly in 2009. Uh, So it's been a few years since, uh, since I've even been at this congregation and since this study came out. I didn't want to engage too deep into the topic. It was a really raw topic when it when it came after the I'm sorry after the study was approved. Uh, there was much dissension and there was disagreement and membership loss and all these kind of fun things that came with that change in position. Uh, but I decided that I think it'd be a good thing for us to take a look at it at this time. Uh, things have changed a bit. I'm a bit more comfortable openly promoting the ELCA stances on this, and I've really come to believe, as I look around our world and our community, that there's a lot of people, I think, who are really hurting out there, and who need to know that there are churches, particularly in Northwest Tucson and in the Marana area, that are open, that are affirming, that are not literalist or fundamentalist, where you can be LGBTQ+, and come and be welcomed, and not be told you have to pray it away, Uh, and not have certain Bible verses slammed over your head as if that closes all discussion and ends all debate forever and always. So I'm offering this class. I had initially uh, thought of doing it as a hybrid class on Wednesday nights or maybe live streaming it. I do encourage you to come to the live class, and that will be Wednesday nights. There's three more of them coming up in the next three Wednesdays. But I decided to offer a sort of a safe space for people to talk and share their stories and not have to worry about it going online. That instead of live streaming it, I would just, for those who are at home and unable to make the class, you're just going to get me talking into a camera. And that way, those who come in person have the chance for more feedback, but they have a safe space to do that and not worry about repercussions. But so, What I'm going to do today is I'm going to look at not the social statement itself, although there's a link down in the description. I encourage you to look at it. It is a little bit long. I think it's 64 pages. It is about more than just homosexuality, although that's kind of the section everybody jumps to. Uh, I encourage you to read that, download it, and you can review that. Next week, I will start looking more at the particulars of the statement how the ELCA does social statements, those kind of things. But I realize that every discussion of sexuality, when you get involved in that in churches, you have to deal with the 500,000 pound uh, gorilla in the room, which is the Bible and what the Bible says. Because for a lot of us, the Bible has been used as kind of a clobber tool uh, to end, not, not the beginning of an exploration or discussion, but the end of all debate and discussion, and that for a lot of people who are struggling with issues of sexuality in a changing culture that has shifted its values a lot, um, the Bible gets thrown out as the rule book to draw certain lines. And I can tell you in this area, uh, all the other churches around me, for a ways, uh, and there's some exceptions, but the vast majority of them, 90% of them, are evangelical or fundamentalist in orientation and have a very, very rigid view on human sexuality and marriage. And the line that they will repeat to you without any hesitation is, the Bible says sex is in marriage with one man and one woman, period, end of story, end of discussion, debate over, thump. That's how it goes. Is that really what the Bible says? Well." I'm going to give you some Bible passages today, a sampling, by no means a comprehensive view, but I'll give you a sampling of some different Bible passages that will show that in fact in the Bible, in the 66 different books in the Bible, there is a lot of range of views on sexuality, on marriage, on practices, uh, and it is not always one man and one woman, and it is not always in marriage. That isn't to say that, uh, that one man and one woman in marriage is bad, or that there isn't a legitimate need for some discussion and some debate on how we view sexuality in our culture and in our churches, and what is our faith response to that. I think there are some very legitimate discussions and debates to be had, but they need to be done in a more comprehensive, nuanced way than trying to simply throw the book down, particularly with issues of gay marriage and gay rights, and have the book thrown down and pull out the Infamous seven clobber verses, that's what uh, we in the mainline call them. We call them the clobber verses. Out of the, what, 60,000 some verses in this huge, thick Bible, uh, there's seven, only seven, mind you, that have anything even remotely tangentially to do with homosexuality. Um, and yet those seven verses get pulled out to argue, therefore, it's always a sin. And if you are oriented that way, bottle it up and be celibate or pray it away and become straight. That's God's way, it's just the way it's written. Here's the seven verses that prove it. Now, I am not the biggest expert on the clobber verses. I do encourage you to look it up. There are lots of good mainline progressive Christian books and mainline progressive Christian blogs that are cheap and free and accessible online where they will go into very great depth on those seven clobber verses and will show you that none of them are dealing with the question of can two consenting adults of the same gender have sexual relations not a single one of them are asking that question they all are dealing with different contexts in different eras Um, again it's a legitimate discussion in the church what we do and do not teach but let's not put words into the Bible that the Bible doesn't say. So, I hope for all of you out there who are watching that you will know that there is at least a church in this area uh, where you're welcome and where the usual clobbering and thumping is not done, but where we look at the Bible with a great deal of love and respect, but understand the Bible in some of its nuances and understand that uh, maybe what you've had hit over the head isn't what the Bible says. So let's get started with our little sampling. I'm going to switch to a graphic here. I'm going to throw up. I just drew it with Sharpie markers, so it's not terribly complex, but I find that sometimes these little, sometimes when you oversimplify things, it gives you a framework for understanding things better. And that's what I'm going to do right here. I'm going to oversimplify the whole Bible a lot, to help give a framework for how it understands, particularly laws and rules. And one of the things about the Bible is it is not a linear, internally consistent rule book. Uh, it is not internally consistent at all uh, on lots and lots and lots of things. In fact, it, within the Bible, it often critiques itself, it goes back and forth. Uh, One book of the Bible will openly criticize the teachings in another book of the Bible. And the rabbis and later the church fathers who compiled the Bible were totally aware of this and totally okay with it. It's only been in our modern world where we've started to apply this sort of law of contradiction that it must all be smooth. And if it doesn't fit, then we have to come up with a reason to explain it away. But let's look at the structure of how the Bible is set up. Again, I'm oversimplifying, but this is for teaching. So, first five books of the Bible. We'll start on the left side of this chart, right? On the bottom, I got the, what the section of the Bible is. On the top, my oversimplified view of how it views laws and rules and regulations. The first five books are the Torah, and Torah means law. That's what it means. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, first five books. There's a lot of story in there, but in Jewish tradition, it is called the law because the bulk of the laws in the New Testament are in those first five books. There's very few laws in the rest of the books in all the writings and the prophets. And so it is called the law. When Jesus is debating with Pharisees, you will often hear them say, what does Moses say? Or what does it say in the law? They're referring to those first five books. And it is chock full of laws and rules and regulations. We'd be here for, I could do this for years, walking through all the rules and regulations. There's 623 of them. The rabbis counted them all and accounted for duplicates. God bless you. Um, So that's the first part. Lots of laws, lots of rules, lots of regulations. The next chunk is the prophets. The prophets is the biggest part of the Old Testament takes the most space, the most books, the most writing, and the prophets are actually very critical of certain laws and how people apply those laws, which would seem to undermine the law. Uh, And which is why, again, in Jesus's day, there were people who would argue with him who didn't take the prophets as scripture. They were called Sadducees. They only took the law. The prophets were interesting, but they didn't consider them scripture. Why? Because the prophets were not very big on a lot of those laws. One example, uh, animal sacrifice. Go through the book of Leviticus and there is chapter after chapter after chapter about how to properly perform animal sacrifices. If you have sinned, this is what you must do. You take a sheep or a goat and you tie it up and you kill it, you do X, Y, Z. And it's procedure after procedure of how to do these sacrifices. You get into the prophets, you get into the Psalms, and it's suddenly God saying, I abhor your sacrifices. Do justice instead. Wow. So you spend five books telling me to sacrifice, and then the next, you know, several telling me don't sacrifice at all. Um, So the prophets are very critical. The prophets also, quote, very few of the laws. The prophets also are not terribly concerned about people following the laws with a, a few exceptions. The prophets are much more concerned about whether there's economic justice, social justice, uh, people not worshiping idols. They're concerned about things like debt slavery and widows and orphans. These are things that the prophets are very concerned about. So I wrote critiques of laws and rules, not throwing them out, but taking a critical look at them. Okay, after the prophets, uh, what's the next chunk? The Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're the life of Jesus. How does Jesus look at laws and rules? Well, with one hand, Jesus says, I'm not going to eliminate any of the laws and rules, not even a stroke of the pen of any of the laws. On the other hand, he reinterprets them and violates them all the time. He violates the Sabbath law all the time. He violates the dietary laws. He da- violates the purity laws by hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He, he he flat out gets rid of the stoning laws. And there's a bunch of passages that mandate stoning. And he's he basically wipes that out. So he's kind of a reformer, a reinterpreter, not throwing them out, but he's reinterpreting. And so Jesus tends to look at things much more from a lens of uh, are, we fo- are we following God as loving, faithful people of God? Not so much are we following every one of the laws exactly. That's how Jesus looks at it. He's kind of a critical view too. Jesus is a lot like the prophets in this way. After Jesus, who comes? Paul. The Apostle Paul. Paul grew up uh, Jewish. He was one of the greatest Jewish scholars of his time. Uh, and, but Paul grew up in a Roman era. Uh, in a Greek town, and he spoke Greek, and Greek was his first language, and so Paul had entered the world looking at the laws and the rules and the regulations uh, and their interaction with Greece and Rome, and particularly when it comes to issues of human sexuality, and we'll get to this a little bit more in the future, but when we get to issues of human sexuality, Paul is not is is a Jew growing up in a heavily Greek area where Greek values and Greek understandings of sexuality are the norm and the dominant cultural values. And he's not a particularly big fan of that for very good reasons. And also, Paul, uh, when he's looking at issues of sexuality and marriage, Paul is thinking Jesus is going to return within his lifetime. So maybe in the next 30 years, he was convinced Jesus was gonna come back well, if Jesus is coming back right away, why do we need to worry about establishing good social order and marriage and family and worrying about long-term community issues when the truth is all we really need to do is hold on and not blow it before Jesus gets here, which means that he tended to view sexuality and marriage as kind of, uh, it was temptations Uh, It could lead you to sin. I think Paul was himself probably very repressed and had a very tortured view of sexuality himself, but in general, his view of marriage is kind of negative. He even says at one point, it's better if you be celibate, but if you can't get married, it's better to be married than to be sinful. That's not a huge, high, great view of marriage, right? you know, how many pastors try to, in churches, extol marriage as this godly thing. And there's Paul going, well, it's better, than, it's better than not getting resurrected in the last judgment, I guess. Kind of a negative view. But that's Paul's view. So he's not super strict about a lot of things. He's just sort of, hold on, right? If you just got a few years, just hold on. All right. Then we get to the last section. Last section is the deutero- Pauline letters, all those letters that have Paul's signature on them that are not written by Paul. For example, 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians uh, are not written by Paul. Uh, even some of the letters, like, such as Timothy and Titus, are not written by Paul. They have Paul's signature on them, but they were written much later by other people. They're a little bit like writing in the spirit of Paul, I think is how the writers would have thought of it. But they have a very different view towards women in authority, women in leadership, gender roles, sexuality, and what you find in the Deutero, uh, Pauline epistles, the, the not really Pauline epistles, and in what I call the little books, if you get to the end of the Bible, Timothy and Peter and Titus and Jude, uh, all those books get they start getting really legalistic they start really getting strict about gender roles and marriage and what's going on what's going on is jesus and paul were really reforming and egalitarian and people started taking leadership and the church got bigger and the romans started taking notice and the da and so essentially and this is for lack of a better way of putting it they kind of sold out to rome and they sold out to the strict gender roles of Roman and Greek culture and, and clamped down on it again. And so it's in that last few sec- sections of the New Testament where you get all these rules. You know, wives must obey their husbands in all things. Jesus doesn't say that and Paul doesn't say that, but they come out in the end. Why? They're clamping down. So your Bible, if you look at it, it starts with laws and rules ends with laws and rules and is filled with lots of critique and varied views in the middle. So obviously, if you are a Christian and you want your religion to be about sex laws and sex rules, about gender and roles and when you can and when you can't and who can and who can't and drawing these lines and these boundaries and check, 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 you're going to love the Torah and you're really going to love those pastoral epistles like like 1st and 2nd Timothy, that have lots of laws about genders and gender roles, you're going to not look at Jesus as much. Not that you won't look at Jesus, but when it comes to issues of sexuality, you're gonna notice that Jesus says very little about it at all, and you're gonna kinda go, well, let's just jump to Timothy and say the Bible says. Well, when you say the Bible says, what you're really saying is, the parts of the Bible that fit my narrative says right and um, we all know the old canard that people pick and choose right Um, and we all do but that's not a bad thing that's a wise thing to do Uh, and that's how it's always been done so this is my overview remember so the Bible is a critique among itself all right so now I, what I want us to do is let's jump into a few of these passages. This is a sampling, a spattering, a little picking here and there, because I got one, I'm doing one of these videos, and then we're gonna move on in the next ones to more of the social statement and ELCA specific issues. So let's go way back into the Old Testament and look at Exodus 22. So Genesis. The first book is mostly stories, but once you start getting into Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, you get lots of laws. A lot of these laws are laws that you've probably never heard. Now, as I go through these passages, I'll give you my warning. I'm going to be talking in a lot of euphemisms, because partly I don't want to get uh, flagged on YouTube and Facebook for explicit warnings. Um, But I am going to be talking about what's in the Bible. So... Uh, just a heads up on that. If I sound like I'm indirect, I know that they can flag content. And of course, it's a, I'm on a church uh, website, so uh, I don't want to be explicit, but I do want to be honest about the topic. So here we go. Exodus 22, let's read this. When a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an equal amount to the bride price for virgins. Huh? We don't do bride prices. But that's actually a common thing. I think it even in the West happened up until into the Renaissance. Uh, I think they were still doing bride prices. It tended to be a more wealthy thing. Um, But the idea is pretty simple. Uh, The groom's family has to pay the bride's family for the bride, and um, yeah, it really does kind of feel like buying and selling people, Uh, and it kind of was, and in that system, the groom would provide a bride price, the bride would provide a dowry, so each family provided, and so this became a sexual marketplace thing. If the, the more desirable the young woman was, the higher the bride price she could fetch, and the lower the dowry she'd have to supply. If she was less desirable, the scales would tip. And her father, her family would have to cough up a big dowry to convince a guy to marry a less desirable woman. And so yes, this becomes very objectifying, meat markety. And one of the biggest things that ruined your sexual marketplace value in this culture was not being a virgin. Virgins could fetch a high price, non-virgins, your, your family would be lucky to get you married off at all. And for a guy, it was almost seen as emasculating if you were so low status that you were stuck having to marry a non-virgin. Uh, and so this was super important in this culture. Well, obviously, people go out and they have sex, and so what happens? Sometimes they do it before marriage. And so here in Exodus, they built, they set up a standard that says, well, if you, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, if you break it, you buy it. So you sleep with her, you got to pay her family the price, and you got to marry her. That's how it goes. Now, her dad still has the right to refuse. You could be a total schmuck, right? You still got to pay. That's the deal. That's how you deal with it. Do we have, you know, do we have bride prices? No. No. But it's important to understand, and that's why I picked this particular one, is because it's important to understand that Middle Eastern marriage is about family alliances, property transfers, money, tribal alliances, Um, it's about contracts, it's about preventing, preventing feuds, sharing resources and land and cattle, love, really has nothing to do with it. And because it is so contractual, uh, that is the concern. Notice, there's no concern whatsoever about whether the guy is a virgin. That is absolutely, totally, and utterly irrelevant, right? So there's an absolute double standard. Why? Because you aren't paying, the the man isn't what anyone's paying for. There's no husband price. It's a bride price. So you'll see when you get into the Torah, Laws about sexuality are hugely concerned about virginity, preserving virginity, what happens when virginity is lost, how, how do you work out these family contracts, because they can become huge points of, huge points of fighting. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Let's keep going here. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty two thirteen 13 to 21. All right, suppose a man marries a woman. But after going into her, he dislikes her and makes up charges against her, slandering her by saying, I married this woman, but when I lay with her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. The father of the young woman and her mother shall then submit the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. I've never heard an evangelical quote this verse and say, the Bible says, and I've never heard a single fundamentalist quote this verse and say, oh, if we don't follow this verse, we're picking and choosing from the Bible. Oh, we're caving into the culture if we don't demand virginity testing. We're just giving into the culture's values. Why do I never hear that? Because this isn't, because they long ago, all of us long ago got rid of the, quit following this law uh, for so many reasons. Thank God we don't follow this one, right? But again, we're back to that whole issue of virginity, and it's a price, right? And if you're a guy and you paid good money to her family so you could get a virgin, again, you gotta think in property terms, you paid a lot of money, and then you find out she's not, you, you're, you're reacting, and it's kind of, I, I, I don't like this analogy because it kind of, it's um, uncomfortable to me, but it makes sense. It's a little bit like buying a car. That's how you have to understand how this law thinks, right? I bought a car thinking I had 20000 and then I took it to my mechanic and found out it had 120000 and you fixed the odometer, I want my money back, right? I paid for a virgin, she's not. Well, how the, how the heck does he know? Honestly, how does he know? Well, now you start getting into this whole issue of hymens and which is, of course, medically dubious uh, and long since been proven highly inaccurate uh, by modern medicine, but that's what they're talking about. That's the evidence. And so the old practice was right after the wedding, they'd go into the bedroom and they would come out and the groom would be expected to come out with this bloody sheet as the proof. Whenever I do this Bible study, I get lots of women going, maybe I'll just keep a razor blade with me in case, you know, off chance of just like cut myself. Because if the alternative is you get stoned for adultery, hmm, maybe a little, you know, maybe, I could, maybe a little razor blade doesn't hurt. I'm sure there were people who tried to rig the system all the time. But what this is also dealing with is a guy paying the family and arranging this whole complex family arrangement and then deciding, yeah, she isn't good in bed. I want, I want a different model. And basically it says, no, <laughs> you made a deal, you stick with it. You don't get to falsely accuse her of not being a virgin so that you can get out of it. Again, contract, property. This isn't about morals and purity and values and self-worth. Oh, this has not, nothing to do with any of that stuff. This is a good sample of how a lot of this stuff works. Let's go to the next one. Start at verse 16. Let's keep moving on this. The father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has made up charges against her, saying, I did not find evidence of your daughter's virginity, but here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. Then they shall spread out the cloth before the elders of the town. Yeah, not humiliating at all, huh? The elders of that town shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine him 100 shekels of silver, which they shall give to the young woman's father. Because he has slandered a virgin of Israel, she shall remain his wife. He shall not be permitted to divorce her as long as she lives. I was at the class last night, and the first reaction was, wow, that sounds like a happy marriage. I want to stay with that guy. Again, Marriage isn't about your love or your feelings or your happiness. The idea that marriage is about augmenting my personal happiness is an incredibly modern idea. That's a post 1960s western idea. Before then, marriage was always about family, community, duty, obligation, parenting, making babies. It had nothing to do with happiness and fulfillment and finding my dreams and any of that stuff. So, in other words, you don't get to get out of the marriage. Now, is that guy likely to then dump his anger at being with a woman he doesn't want to be with? Probably. So there was probably lots of domestic abuse that followed from this. Again, I am very grateful we don't follow it, but this is, this is the idea. There's a lot of laws in Deuteronomy around sexuality that follow this way. Um, but it doesn't say anywhere that the man has to be a virgin. That's utterly irrelevant. The man could have a body count of 10,000. They don't care. That's not relevant. So the argument that sex is in marriage, one man, one woman, that's not what this says. And even if the woman isn't a virgin, it doesn't even say that's wrong. It just says that you can't lie about that. You have to be up front, right? If your daughter's not a virgin, you have to negotiate that up front. Don't lie about it. That's the crime. The crime is lying about it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20, if however this charge is true, that evidence of the young woman's virginity was not found, again medically dubious, but it's in there, then they shall bring the young woman out to the entrance of her father's house and the men of the town shall stone her to death because she committed a disgraceful act in Israel by prostituting herself in her father's house, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So yeah, there's a lot at stake, right? A lot at stake. Stone her in front of her father's house so her dad has to sit there and watch her die. You could imagine the kind of pressure that this puts on fathers to keep their daughters under lock and key, to put the fear of God into them from the day they are born to not sleep around and to threaten them with horrendous punishments. And I think this is what you see still to this day when you see honor killings. You see that exact same thing. The shame brought on by a woman, not a man, not being a virgin is so great that the parents themselves will kill the daughter. So the family won't carry that shame. It's a way of saying proving I don't I agree with it too. Again, don't see anybody wanting virginity tests at weddings in any church that says that we Lutherans are, don't believe in the Bible because of gay marriage. All right, keep going. Leviticus 20. Leviticus, this is the one that's full of laws about boundaries and purity. You can't do this, you can't do that. Here's a sampling of a whole big slew of them. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. So don't sleep with your mom or stepmom. I guess. Stone them both. At least they both get stoned in this one. Equal opportunity stoning. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There we go. There's a clobber verse. Verse 13 is a clobber verse. Um, and I wanted to give the context of this to have a sense that when you see this, it's not in isolation. It's in a context of a worldview of everything, of having lines and boundaries all over the place. Abomination means the mixing of two things that shall not be mixed. And in contradiction to the Greek and Roman view, the Greek and Roman view would have said that, that it's only perversion for a man to take the female role, shall we say, to use a euphemism. Here, they both are stoned. So that's a clobber verse. Again, even the people who refuse to make a gay wedding cake uh, don't seem to be wanting to bring back stoning. Um, But who knows? I know there's those afraid that they actually would try to do that. But that's a clobber verse right there, right? In the context of all these other things. And there's some more after it, right? If a man takes a wife and her mother also, ooh, it is depravity. They shall be burned to death. Wow, we went hardcore here both he and they, that there may be no depravity. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he shall be put to death and you shall kill the animal. All right, no argument there. If a woman approaches any animal and has sexual relations with it, this is verse 16, uh, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall be put to death, their blood is upon them, okay. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the people that's ostracized kicked out he has uncovered his sister's nakedness they shall be subject to punishment doesn't say what the punishment is other than that they'll be cut off but you can't marry the mother and the daughter that's wrong Um, if a man lies with a woman having her sickness and uncovers her nakedness He has laid bare her flow and she has laid bare her flow of blood. Both of them shall be cut off from the people. Again, don't hear a lot of evangelical sermons telling people not to have sex during menstruation. Um, I think that's something that most of us would be happy. Just let someone else deal with that in their own bedroom. Your issue, not mine. But that's not a rock they're standing on. Right? Let's do verse 19. Let's keep the train rolling. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, you can't sleep with your aunt, or of your father's sister, your aunt on the other side, for that is to lay bare one's own flesh. There's this whole idea of sort of uncovering nakedness. Like if, if somebody has been with your father, that still, it's somehow tainted with that, right? That you're not actually looking at your father's nakedness, but because she has, you're kind of, connect, there's a connection there, right? And there's a connection that is unholy, you shan't do. They shall be subject to punishment. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, boy, we're, we're getting into, right? This is Leviticus, we're going to hit every base. Think of every possible, uh, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. Notice how it's not his aunt's Right? Not like aunt's sister. Because she has slept with the uncle, somehow their nakedness is connected. They shall die childless. Ouch. Okay. Huh, it's kind of exhausting reading those rules in the Torah. But you got to get a sampling of it. It's there. It's what's in there. And these laws keep going. There's tons of them. chapters of them. And yet, The only one that gets quoted is that verse 13. There's another one in Deuteronomy too. Um, And there's another one in I think Leviticus 18. Again, I'm not the biggest expert on all the clobber verses. My only point is to say that there's a lot of picking and choosing going on when someone extracts a clobber verse but then ignores every single other verse around it ignores the whole context of it ignores the world view of it ignores all the other regulations which way back then would have all been considered a package deal so you can't look at progressive christians and mainline christians and elca lutherans and accuse us of treating the bible like an old country buffet you know where we pick out the parts that fit our agenda you know, you're doing that too, you know, you're doing that too, you're not checking for virginity at weddings, you know, I mean, I don't know any pastor anywhere uh, who can honestly, truthfully say, I'm sure they exist, I'm sure they exist, there's some one percent or something in our country, but every one of my colleagues, if you say, have you ever done a wedding for two virgins, and none of them know of ever doing that, but we don't say, well, we're not doing your wedding for that reason, all right, Prophets, let's jump to the prophets. Good old prophets. Remember there's the law and then there's the critique of the law. The prophets don't really lay down a lot of laws. And when the prophets get angry at the people, which they do all the time, it isn't because of violating purity laws most of the time. There's only a very small number of of cases where that comes up. Again, the concern of the prophets, their anger is social injustice not treating the widow, the orphan, the homeless, the poor, the resident alien well. So it's a very socioeconomic concern the prophets have. Two, it's worshiping other gods. Do you worship gods like Baal, Asherah, um, Gilgamesh, whatever, uh, in the other religions around you? Prophets are not universalists, they're not Uh, Unitarians they are very exclusivistic you worship the Lord your God and that's it period end of story or God's wrath 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 right. Um, Occasionally they do bring up issues of sexual morality and those always get tagged on in a grocery list of other sins right so the the sexual sins are one sin in a laundry list of others so let's look at Amos Amos is an easy one to pick out because Amos um, he, 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 has such, he rails all the time, he's, he's easy anyways. Amos 2, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way Father and son go in to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. All right, what are the transgressions? Let's list them. Sell the righteous for silver. Slavery, slave trading. That's what they're doing. They're enslaving people. The needy for a pair of sandals. What's that? That's debt slavery. That's basically saying somebody is so poor, so down on their luck, they can't even afford sandals, and they're stuck walking around on the hard rock with bare feet. Their feet are getting bloody, and the rich guy or the banker comes up and says, I will uh, I will give you a loan to buy sandals at some ridiculous interest rate that the poor person couldn't possibly pay. But what's your option? You don't walk? So they take the deal, and then when they can't pay back all the interest, the banker goes, oh, well, you'll have to work it off in slavery. And so this was a racket going on, this predatory lending racket. was a huge thing they did back then. And that's how they kept their cheap labor force going. They would just offer loans to poor people on the street that they couldn't pay off and then enslave them because it was easier than just paying your wages. And for that, Amos is livid. What is the punishment that he won't revoke in verse 6? There's an invading army. The Assyrians have, have basically steamrolled everything in what's now Iraq and Syria, and they're at the gates of the northern kingdom. And Amos is saying, If you don't change your ways, Assyria is going to come in and they are going to mow you down because they mowed down kingdom after other kingdom, and God's going to let them. That's the punishment. It's a nasty punishment. Okay, so we have slavery, debt slavery, then we've got just being a, a mean jerk to poor people, right? trampling their head into the dust so like you're walking down the street and kicking them i mean you're you're just mean there's words i have for you that i don't want to say on on youtube um push the afflicted out of the way instead of helping the sick on the street you you, you treat them like a nuisance and kick them out of the way and so we have, so we have money sin money sin money sin money sin father and son go into the same girl which again, you notice, was clearly a violation, right? Um, and so, but it's a sign of the, the larger moral depravity. And it's the bottom of the list. Again, those who may decide that father and son going into the same girl is wrong, I share their view. Um, I wish they would talk about um, predatory lending with the same zeal. I wish they'd be just as concerned about exploiting third world labor at poverty wages as they are about father and son. Why do you why are you you picking one sin and not the other? All right. Now we're going to jump to we're going to jump back a little bit. And I'm going to step out this is going to be a little bit more I won't say thin ice, but I'm stepping out a little bit more into speculation maybe, but Uh, I've got colleagues uh, who are big allies in the LGBT community. One of my former uh, campers uh, from Bible Camp is now the head of a big organization. He runs a a queer camp for kids. And I had asked him about some insights into doing this. He told me, it was kind of interesting what he said, it was that not just to be on the defensive of sort of arguing against a conservative position on this, which I've been doing, uh, but to also be in the affirmative and say it's not just that the Bible doesn't forbid homosexual consensual adult homosexual behavior, it's that uh, there actually are cases of it in the Bible. And the most common one that gets cited, I do think that ancient Israel, ancient Judaism was not very friendly towards homosexual acts, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, And that doesn't mean that throughout the centuries there haven't been waxing and waning of the strictness of these kind of rules. And one of the cases that gets brought up and that was mentioned to me was the case of King David and his general Jonathan. And so we'll look at a passage here in 1 Samuel 20. This is just one little snippet I really encourage you to read that big saga in Samuel. It's a big, long one, and it would take me hours and hours and hours and hours of video to get through all of it. But here's the background of it. David is not the king yet. There's a king named Saul. Saul is the first king. But Saul has fallen out of God's favor, and things keep getting worse and worse for Saul. So Saul's status is going down, and he's going down in God's favor david on the other hand just killed goliath this is that david he just killed the giant goliath he's been winning battles he's been he's been conquering enemies his star is rising saul's is fading and soon what we will see is david will end up becoming the king and saul saul will die and david will become the king but as saul is declining in status and popularity and popular support Uh, Saul is not going to take kindly to this, and so he sends out his troops to go after David and his troops. It's not quite a civil war because they don't really directly engage, but David's got his little band of rebels that are kind of running around the countryside trying to avoid Saul and his generals who are chasing them. Who is David's top general? Jonathan. Who is Jonathan's dad? Saul. Jonathan is siding with David. Is it a cynical political calculation? Or is there something more going on between David and Jonathan that is what motivates Jonathan to be willing to make the huge leap to going against his own father, which would have been like treason of treasons. Even to this day, that would be treason of treasons, right? Um, and, uh, uh, but Jonathan does. And not only does Jonathan go against his own father, side with David, fight with David, go on the run with David, but over and over, Jonathan pledges his loyalty and his undying love to David, and vice versa. Does that, what does, and what does that mean? Well, this has become the interpretive thing. If you take a conservative position, you're gonna say, yes, David and Jonathan use the word love a lot, uh guys talked differently back then it wasn't as big of a deal to show affection in that way i think there's some truth to that um, but there are other words they could use they could use friendship and alliances and there are, there's other words they could use than love um, is it purely platonic i mean we don't get there's no scene in first samuel where we get a and david and jonathan went off and this is what happened blow by blow um you're left, to, you're left to infer it, uh, but it's there an awful lot. And the, 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 the writing is just a little bit too suggestive that you kind of end up, I think the conclusion is solid, that David and Jonathan had a special relationship that was beyond just friends and it was beyond just politics and it was beyond just alliances and that they were lovers in some way and that and and that that was considered okay and it keeps coming up over and over so this is one little snippet of that saga thus jonathan made a covenant with the house of david saying may the lord seek out the enemies of david jonathan made david swear again by his love for him for he loved him as he loved his own life Sounds pretty intense to me. That sounds like more than Machiavellian calculation. That's love. That's I'm gonna die for you. That's not just friendship, right? May the Lord seek out the enemies of David? That's your dad, Jonathan. Wow. I, I, think, I think the case is solid. But I think it's, it's scary enough to try to imagine you know for a lot of people the great king david who had 14 wives also had a guy that david could have swung both ways and that everybody knew it and nobody said anything about it and everyone was totally okay with it now we know of course polygamy is all over the bible david had 14 wives his son solomon would have hundreds gideon had multiples uh abraham uh, he had his wife, but when he, he couldn't get a baby with her, he then got his slave pregnant, and that was considered uh, okay. Um, it was the, the question, the, the, the sin was that he didn't trust God to get his wife pregnant, not that he had sex with a slave. So we know that polygamy is there. We know that there was sex with slaves. We know there was sex with concubines. We know that this stuff is all over the Old Testament. And now I think we've got reason to believe that David had a general, And he had 14 wives. And to make life even more interesting, one of those 14 wives was a woman named Michael, whose father was Saul. Uh, So that means David had both the brother and the sister. And that's in the Bible. Again, there's a little bit of speculation, but I think the case is solid. Okay, let's go to another story here. Another example of um, people doing going outside of the norms that we would think. The book of Ruth, small little book. Ruth and Naomi are Jewish, but they for various reasons have moved outside of Jewish territory into what we now call the West Bank. It was ruled back then by people called Moabites. And Naomi and her daughter Ruth are living among these Moabites. And Naomi is trying to figure out how to get back into town. And so Naomi hatches this plot to get Ruth married off to this next of kin. So th- there was kind of a procedure that when, you know, when a, a brother would die, you'd marry the sister, you'd take care of the- that you would take care of the widows by marrying them. And so this guy named Boaz, by rights, is the one who's supposed to marry her, but how do you convince Boaz to do that because maybe he, wasn't, he didn't know her that much? Let's read Ruth 3. Let's see what Naomi's plot is to get her daughter married off. Naomi, uh, her, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. He is winnowing, are these young women his daughters or his wives, we're not sure. He is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, that's cover yourself in perfume, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me I will do." Okay, couple ways you can look at this. One way you could say, um, all right, it literally is just feet. Boaz has a foot fetish. I don't know. And that feet just means feet. And all she's going to do is pull up his robe and, I guess, kiss his feet or something. And she, since she's not big into feet, he'll show her how what to do. You can believe that, or you can believe that feet is a euphemism used throughout the Old Testament uh, to refer to genitalia. In which case, she's uncovering a lot more of the robe and performing a particular sex act on him after he's laid down drunk. That's that's Naomi's plan. Get him drunk and uncover his feet. Um, And since you're not familiar with how to do this, don't worry, he'll tell you what to do. Just do what he says. It'll work out. All right, verse six, we'll keep going. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and there lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, who are you? (laughs) He didn't say go away. (laughs) He said, who are you? He didn't say stop. He said, who are you? So we're performing some sort of sex. I guess, I guess it depends on what you think is weirder. Her doing something to his, her doing something to his literal feet, or her doing something to his, quote, feet. Um, But either way, they're not married yet. They're not married. And he might have other women, right? She's been working with his young women. And since Boaz has money, he probably has other wives. So we're talking polygamy, premarital, you know, we're talking oral. Hmm, This is getting kind of interesting. And it's in the Bible. Ruth and Boaz will end up being the ancestors of King David. Um, and that's the big reason the book of Ruth is in there. It establishes the family line of King David. So all of Israel is saved through Ruth's act. All right, let's keep going. What's our time looking at? I think we probably are just going to stick to Old Testament today, I have a feeling, just as a matter of time. So maybe next week we'll get into more New Testament. All right, Song of Solomon, this is a fun one. You should totally read the book of Song of Solomon, sometimes called the Song of Songs. I could do a whole video series on this one too. I would definitely get flagged in YouTube for reading all of Song of Solomon. Um, I'm sure when I post this on Apple, they'll give me the explicit uh, uh, rating. I I love it when my sermons get the explicit rating. Um, When I uh, talk about, for example, the high priest anus. YouTube thought that was a different word and slapped me with a rating. Anyways, uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, This is a little book you probably don't know is there and have probably never read and your pastor has probably never preached on. Um, The premise of the book, the two-cent background, is this is a love poem uh, going back and forth between a prince or king Supposedly Solomon, but in the Old Testament, every king gets attributed to Solomon. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is. And a peasant girl, uh, who, uh, who say, it's interesting, she kind of says that she, I am but a peasant, and talks about her dark skin, which could mean either she just naturally has dark skin, or uh, that's also seen as being somebody who works out in the field. So your skin was tan a lot, right? Hence the need for head coverings in women to keep your skin from tanning so you were more fair. That proved you were more high class. Lower class women had to go and till had to go and, and sew, so, and so their skin would get darker. We don't know exactly what it means, but this is a love affair. This is the king or the prince. This is the prince and a peasant, right? And if you think that's not believable, remember... England now has a new king a king who was married to the most beautiful woman in the world in 1980 and who cheated on her with a commoner who is now what do they call camilla queen consort so this happens solomon of course if you read through the uh, old testament books had hundreds of wives and even more concubines these sort of half-wives so Solomon had a ginormous harem full of women. Most of them were arranged. It was a way of forming alliances. So the king of Syria would send his daughter to Solomon. It's a way of forming an alliance. Even Pharaoh supposedly sent his daughter to Solomon, which never, ever happened. It was always someone, Pharaoh always liked to be in the power position, but that showed how powerful Solomon was. But these were all arranged marriages. These were all women who were obligated by law to sleep with him. But instead, what does Solomon do? He goes out and he has a love affair with a peasant girl somewhere in the city. And that's this book. It's a love affair. A premarital, extramarital love affair. Let's read some of it. Chapter 5. This is the peasant girl writing. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on again? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved thrust his hand into the opening and my inmost being yearned for him. I arose to open to my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh upon the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he gave no answer. the Song of Solomon has probably thrown a monkey wrench in every prudish Christian pastor's thing. Throughout Christian history, there's been lots of ways to try to explain it away. Uh, And going back a long time, it was seen as an allegory. Bernard of Clairvaux in the 1200s is one of the famous ones who said, this is really about the soul in union with God. So the, the peasant girl is the soul and the prince is God and 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 their love is like the soul yearns for God. And I'm like, that's less weird than it just being a love affair? But the truth is, they're not married. And this is really detailed and really positive and really pleasurable and really celebrating and really not married and really not monogamous. And it's in the Bible. All you can conclude is that the rabbis weren't that concerned about one man, one woman only. And of course, you know, again, you can go through this and say, well, she didn't, this isn't actually physically done. This is all in her head, right? Or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't literally, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It's just not a euphemism, Lars. Come on. You know, when she takes off her garment, she isn't literally taking off a garment. <laughs> she isn't literally leaving her garment off because the lover's coming. She isn't, you know, literally, you know, and then of course you get to euphemisms, right? My hands dripped with myrrh. That's a really expensive spice. So you're going to tell me that this peasant girl had this gigantic jar. Of super expensive perfume and she put her whole hand into this giant jar of super expensive perfume as a peasant that that's what's going on that's that's easier for you to believe that that bolts and doors are not you know euphemisms come on the Bible is not sexuality is evil and sin and leading you to hell There are some passages, particularly in Paul, particularly at the end of the New Testament, that start getting real nervous that lust, that any any sort of sexual pleasure was lust, temptation, and it was a straight highway into, you know, into bad and sin. Those passages are definitely there, right? But you don't run into those until a lot later. The issue wasn't uh, people being with each other outside of marriage. The issue had to do with contracts, and you know, in some ways, I read the Song of Solomon, and it's in many ways kind of a there's a sadness to it because there's a real love here, a real passion that never gets to be officially recognized because the king, for all his power with all his wives, he still can only marry royalty. It's sort of like that's the one thing royalty can't do is pick who they marry, right? You're stuck marrying who they pick for you. And yet who he really loves is a peasant girl. And isn't it sad that society and its class rules and hierarchy won't just let him be, right? Why can't you just let Camilla marry Charles? Well, eventually Queen Elizabeth did break down and let him do that. Um, and, uh, but that's the Song of Solomon. And you can keep, again, I encourage you to keep reading it because she will talk about all the traits in her lover and the physical traits that she loves. And he will go on in great detail to talk about all of her physical characteristics that he really loves. And they will celebrate each other's physicality and then use the word love. So it's not, this isn't hit it and quit it or some sort of weird thing like that. This is an actual passion. And it's in the Bible. And it's celebrated. Sex is not evil. You will have to, again, take a bigger interpretive lens. Again, when you get to Paul and especially the Deuteropauline ones, where they just you know where they start taking this very kind of almost scared of sex view scared that it could lead to something else but that fear that was not the fear and remember again the prophets are never mad the the prophets may rail about sort of perversions right a father and son sharing a girl yeah we all there's some good ich, there's some ick factor there for good reason but the prophets never rail about they're doing it before marriage. Or they're living together in the same apartment and they haven't signed the, the, the certificate yet. Prophets don't care about that. They care about things like justice. And um, so you end with the Bible. I think I'll end here. Um, and next week I'll get into some, I'll have to get into some New Testament. Again, if you want, I encourage you to check out the class. It's the next three Wednesdays. So it would be September Twenty-eight October five and twelve at six thirty. It's here at church. I will keep doing some more of these videos. Like I say, next week I'll do get into some New Testament so I can do that some justice. So you can compare sort of these two different, get a bigger perspective and look at some of these views. Um, again, I encourage you to download the document. As always, feel free to message me, uh, leave a comment or a question. Don't be a troll. I will block you if you're a troll. Um, But, you know, feel free to message me with comments or questions and um, feel free to sit down. If you want to talk more, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Uh, And so I hope this has been, as always, helpful to you uh, and enlightening. I hope you learned something and maybe your eyes are open. I hope it inspires you to read more of the beautiful and wonderful book of the Bible and all of its uh, varied and different views. So God bless. I hope you all have a great week. I'll see you next Thursday. Take care.